I said, the world system's going to do what the world system does. And our Savior's going to do what our Savior does. There will be wars and rumors of wars, but it's not the end yet. It's just the nature of pride and sin. So we pray. Well, we come to the last of the seven churches this morning, which received a personal letter from the Savior in the opening pages of the book of Revelation. But are we at the last sermon in this series? Well, maybe, maybe not. But today we do arrive in Laodicea. Are you a moderate? Not many people would answer yes to that question. When it comes to politics, the moderate has almost become an extinct species. You're either a conservative or a liberal or maybe a libertarian, but, you know, you're probably not a moderate. No politician advertises by saying, vote for me, I'm a moderate. But are you a moderate Christian? Depends on how you define the term. In the King James Version, it uses the word moderate to describe us. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your moderation be known to all men. We're supposed to be moderate. Well, he means let your gentleness be evident to all in the NIV. Let it live with a gentle spirit that's considerate of others. Don't demand your way. That's what he's talking about there. But there is a kind of moderate in the Christian life which is not good. Wilbur Reese describes this person perfectly. It must have been written years ago. I'm going to read the entire text. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. It's a powerful way of explaining how many people approach faith. We don't want to totally change. We just want to feel better about life. The moderate Christian has a moderate Christ who makes moderate demands, and he keeps the Savior at arm's length, lest this religious thing get out of hand in our lives and take over. But you know, it is the wealthy who are the most susceptible to becoming moderate Christians, and that's exactly what happened in this place called Laodicea. We began this journey in, in Ephesus seven, eight weeks ago in western Turkey, and we've moved clockwise to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now we're back down to Laodicea. But of these seven churches, no one gets a more scathing rebuke than the church at Laodicea. It's about 190 to 100 miles due east of Ephesus, about 40 miles south of uh, Philadelphia. It was built on a plateau, actually, about 100 feet above the, the river below. And it reached its greatest wealth during the Roman period. 
like Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. It was built on these trade routes, these roads that would come through and go in from, the, from the coast inland and then eventually to Syria. There were, of course, temples dedicated to various gods. The downtown center of Laodicea had one to Zeus and one to Caesar Augustus. Among its assets, among the things it was known for, was that it raised black sheep in the area. It, it yielded a very soft and valuable wool that was used for clothing, that was used for, for carpets. It's a huge moneymaker. It was also had become a, a banking center, lots of banks in Laodicea. So therefore, there were a lot of wealthy citizens. When its earthquake hit in 60 AD, they didn't even ask Rome for money. They rebuilt on their own without any help. And Laodicea was also home to a very well-developed medical school. They were proud of their medical school. They had some chemicals around that they turned into tablets that they would add water and you could cure eye diseases. But there's a downside living to Laodicea. The water was lousy. It was terrible. Here's a city that was built near a road system, not a well. They had a river, but there was a dry season. In the dry season, they didn't have enough water. And so they had to pipe the water in from Colossae, about 10 miles to the east. They had tons of cool, refreshing spring water. And then they also brought it in from Hierapolis, which had steaming hot geysers, so it was warm water. The problem was, what does geyser water taste like? It's yeah, full of calcium. It's terrible. So when the, when the hot water arrived from Hierapolis, it wasn't really hot anymore. It just tasted terrible. And when the cool water arrived from Colossae, it tasted okay, but it wasn't cool anymore. So when the local river was low, water was a problem. And what did they learn as a community from that? They learned the art of appeasement and conciliation. Let's get along. Don't let anybody attack us. We just got this the way it is here. Don't rock the boat and all will be well. Outwardly, the church in Laodicea looks really good. It's strong. It's prosperous. I think if you attended that church, you would have thought your church was very blessed because they lived in a town that other people envied. It was a church with at least some kind of wealth. And it's not like Smyrna. There's no persecution. It's not like Pergamum. They weren't teaching false doctrine. They didn't do gross immorality like they did in Thyatira. Things are going okay. They got money. Everything's well. It was a comfortable place to live and a comfortable place to go to church. And yet, that combination made Jesus sick. And it gets worse from there. Well, let's take a look at the message he brought to these moderate Christians who had settled, well, for $3 worth of God. Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel in the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of these. I should read it like it's written. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from, the gold, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ooh, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Let's look at this first, the one who speaks. Who is speaking here? It begins like all of the rest of the letters with the description of the Savior. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Three names for the Savior. Amen. Here's the only time his, Jesus is given the name Amen. It's usually the final word of a prayer, right? It means a lot more than it is finished or let's eat. It's a sign of agreement. It means it's true. Jesus Christ is the last word. He is the last word in human history. He is the last word in your personal life. He's the last word in my personal life. He's the last word. Cancer's not the last word. Not divorce, not bankruptcy. Not death, not hell, not war. Jesus and Jesus alone is the last word in your life and mine. He's the amen. Second, he's the faithful and true witness. He's the one you can believe. You can trust him completely. What he says is true, and all that he says is true, and it's true all the time. And the church in Laodicea is not going to be able to, to end this letter. And they've listened to the letter and say, well, that's just his opinion. Well, that's true, it is, but his, word, his opinion is true. This is the letter that is the word of the Son of God, the faithful and true one in all that he does. And third, he's the ruler of God's creation. All creation comes from his hand. There was a beginning and he was there. He's sovereign over every bird that flies and rabbit that runs through the forest and fish that swims. But not only is he sovereign over all of that, he's the glue that holds it all together. If he stopped holding it together, it would fly apart. We owe everything to him. That's who's speaking, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of creation. Point number two. So what's going well in Laodicea? Well, this is the shortest point in all of sermonic history because the answer is nothing. Point number three, I told you. What is not going well in Laodicea? Well, there's two basic problems if you, if you look at it down at its root. Two big things going on as if one isn't enough. Number one, the first thing, A, there is you are indifferent. He says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's got these three adjectives, hot, cold, and lukewarm. 
Now, we're assumed they're talking about the spiritual temperature of the lives of the believers in Laodicea. Yes, but I think only indirectly. What does he say? He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. And we have a contrast here that their deeds are hot, cold, and lukewarm. There's a contrast between these hot medicinal waters from Hierapolis and the cold, pure waters from Colossae. And by the time the water arrives, the hot's not hot and the cold's not cold. So the church of Laodicea in its works was what? It was not providing either refreshment for the spiritually weary or healing for the spiritually sick. It wasn't doing anything. Jesus says, I know your deeds. What you're doing is neither hot nor cold. What you're doing is totally ineffective. It's not making any difference. Do you taste so horrible that Jesus doesn't even want to drink you? Now, I struggled over the meanings of these words a long time this week. Why would Jesus say, I wish you were hot or cold? Think about this. What's another word for lukewarm water? Room temperature. Room temperature. What do you need to do to make room temperature water? Nothing. Not a thing. Leave it alone. All water will eventually become room temperature. Suppose you want hot water. What do you have to do? You've got to heat it up. Put it in the microwave. We do. Put some fire underneath it. Suppose you want cold water. You've got to do something to it to make it cold. I have no idea how they got cold water. They didn't have a refrigerator or put ice cubes in it. Under normal circumstances, water will never become cold if left to itself. So here's the indictment to the church at Laodicea. They are not guilty of some intentional sin, immorality, sleeping around, promoting false doctrine, letting false people come and teach in their church. See, in order to be guilty of one of those things, you have to do something. You have to make a decision that moves you in that direction. How do you become lukewarm? You do nothing. And that's what you will become. You see, a lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a room temperature Christian who has become just like his environment. Rather than changing the world around him, he has slowly let the world change him. When confronted with the eternal riches in Christ, the Laodiceans had settled for $3 worth of God. And to make matters worse, they were happy about it. You see, some churches take the middle road, believing the truth, but they're just unwilling to take a stand for the truth. Why are evangelicals in Ukraine going to face the wrath of Russia? Because they believe and live the scriptures. Putin loves the Orthodox Church. They're not sharing their faith. The culture of the church around Laodicea was peace at all cost. That had infiltrated the church, apparently, which is the exact definition of moderate Christianity. Why does Jesus hate lukewarmness so much? Mostly because a person in this condition doesn't even know it. It's comfortable. 
He slips into a state of total indifference that he doesn't even care about his own spiritual condition. Nothing matters to them because room temperature is comfortable. Except for those of you who always think it's too cold in here. I think it's lovely. <laughs> if it feels right, if you're the same as anybody around you, then it's not too hot, it's not too cold, you're doing fine. And you'll never reach that person unless you shock them. And so Jesus shocks them. What does he do? Verse 16. So because, you're neither, because you are lukewarm, you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This word isn't vomit, it's spit. He's in your mouth, just spit him out. This church tasted terrible to Jesus. Well, that'll get your attention. There's nothing like this that was said to the compromising church at Pergamum, even to the morally corrupt church at Thyatira. You know, well, let's get the righteousness right. In some ways, they were more reachable than the comfortable people at Laodicea. Because at least those other churches could see the error of their ways and deal with it. It's not that way with lukewarmness. And who's in danger of being lukewarm? The people who've sat the longest. Probably the longtime churchgoers. Because after you've been at church a while, you learn the language. You know, you get comfortable. You know the ropes. You know how the system works. You know the lingo. You know where to sit. And you know what's coming next in the worship service. And what once seemed new and exciting is now old hat for you. And it becomes as comfortable as an old shoe. And guess what? I am as prone to lukewarmness as you. I've been a Christian a long time. So it's easy to take everything for granted. What amazes new believers, it doesn't amaze me anymore. So I pray, Lord, show me the truth about myself. Scrape the buildup of indifference on my heart that blocks the work of your spirit in my life. Less after preaching, you spit me out of your mouth. Things were not going well in Laodicea. They were indifferent. But he isn't done. <laughs> Ooh, second, they were arrogant. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The problem here, Jesus says, it's your heart. And until the heart changes, nothing's going to change. He says, you say, I'm rich. I'm clothed. I can see. Arrogance had blinded them to their true spiritual condition. Wealth has a way of doing that, doesn't it? I have a better visual aid than Andrew. Money. Lest you judge me, this is not church funds. These are my funds. And you can keep your hands off my funds. Money is almost hypnotic, is it not? Oh. 
You knew I dropped one, didn't you? And I will pick it up. We love money because we can use money to buy things and meet our needs. Money does crazy things to people, especially to Christian people. Let's be clear. Money's not the problem. This is just paper that's been printed on. They're just little pieces. I probably need to put this away so I can finish the sermon. The only cure for materialism is generosity, giving it away. The very thing that gives you prosperity sends a wasting disease to your soul. We would be much better off to be like Smyrna and be persecuted and to know the blessings of God than to be rich and to be rejected, spit out of the mouth of the Savior. And in Laodicea, the worst of it was, they thought they were doing just fine. You know, they were the big church with the nice building and the smooth, large parking lot with a big staff and a large budget and lots of programs and a good reputation in the community. That's Laodicea. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But this passage needs to remind us that a successful church is not always a church that God approves. They had all the banks in the community, but they were poor. They had their famous ISAB, but they couldn't see. They had their famous black wool, but they were naked. They're arrogant. They're indifferent to God. So what's he really asking of these believers? I think it is this. Are you still desperate for Jesus? No, really. How desperate are you for the Savior? To what lengths are you willing to go to be close to him? Is it worth it to you? Is he worth it to you? Is it worth your reputation? Is it worth your job? Is it worth your sleep? Is it worth your time? You see, the lack of a sense of desperation for God is deadly to the spiritual life. If we don't feel desperate for God, we don't tend to cry out for Him. Which leads to spiritual death, or here, it leads to lukewarm life. Being desperate for more of God should be the cry of every Bible-believing Christian on the planet. We should want our cup to overflow with His presence and His existence. And we should always be seeking for more of Him. And that desire has to, bleed, has to bleed into what we do and who we love and how we love. Spiritual stagnation comes when we think we got enough of God, when we think our cup is just appropriately filled. And to avoid that failure in our faith, we've got to follow the path of the psalmist and always be longing for God. So, fourth, what's the cure? What do you do if that's where you are? If you're Laodicea, what do you do? There's two words of advice this letter gives us to fix what's going on. First, wake up. Wake up. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich, 
and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. The things of which they were so proud proved to be their greatest spiritual need. And that's only met by the Savior. Until you see your need, you're never going to get better. Do you see your need? Jesus returns to this local culture. It's gold. You know, you got gold in the bank. You, it's there for you. But you really need pure gold. You need heavenly gold. Bought by obedience. Salvation's not bought. It's received by grace. But you need gold refined in heaven. You need white garments, not the black, comfortable stuff that you make. You need eye salve, the kind they made, but they needed God's salve. You see, all of these things are available by faith, by walking with God. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him by faith. But some say, this, oh, there's, he's talking to unbelievers here. Are you really sure about that? He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's a clear statement. This is written to believers, not unbelievers. Believers are in need of rebuke and discipline, not unbelievers. They need a Savior. And I'm struck by the personal nature of the appeal Christ makes. If someone said to me, you make me want to spit you out, I would hardly expect that person to turn around and say to me, I love you more than you know. But when you love someone, you can hate what is destroying them and love them all the more. Parents do it all the time. They see their children barking down a path they shouldn't be going. They stand in the way of that path and they say, stop, stop. They will say something even though it will make their child angry. And so it is with the Savior. He loves us so much, we can't stay the same. He says, so be earnest and repent. What do they need to do? They need to wake up. They need to admit their need. They need to see their arrogance and repent. Because until you do that, life's never going to get any better. It's time to turn around and move in a new direction. You're not walking as a follower of Jesus. So wake up. See where you really are. Second thing he says to do is to open up. Verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This appeal now gets very personal. It's amazing, actually. Jesus is being kept outside the church, his church. Yet out of his grace, he still wants to come in. He's not giving up. But the focus here seems to shift to a single believer one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus is knocking, and he's waiting for someone to answer. He's waiting for a believer to come to the door. And though others in the church might ignore him, you don't have to. Your husband or your wife may have no use for Jesus, but you can open the door. Your friends may be so enamored with the world that the call of Christ means nothing, but you, you can open the door. You may be part of a lukewarm church. You can still go to the door and open it for the Savior. He wants to come in. He waits to come in. 
And not only does he want to come in, this is the amazing part to me, he wants to have dinner with you. There's no better picture of the Christian life than that. We can have Jesus as our dinner companion every day. You never have to eat alone. He wants to share a meal with us. And I don't think it's just a fast food in and out burger in the drive through lane. He wants a long and lingering conversation in front of a crackling fire. And isn't it amazing that the worst church gets the best invitation? He offers himself. After exposing their indifference and their arrogance, he says, come have dinner with me. It's like those games we play where we say, if you could have dinner with any three people from history, who would you choose? And you're supposed to say, I don't know, something like Catherine the Great or Elvis Presley or Socrates. It's a fun little exercise. But in in our text, there's only one answer. I want to have dinner with Jesus. Just the two of you. Talking things over while you share a meal. What an offer. I'd love a meal like that. See, this verse is not about coming to Christ for salvation. This verse is written to the lukewarm believer. And he pictures a Savior coming, knocking at the door, waiting for us to open it. Apparently, there's no handle on the outside. It's only on the inside. So don't let your sin and your failure keep you from him. For all the foolish, fallen, messed up things we've done, the the backsliding we've done, the unlovely church people who wish and dream secretly and want a new, new start, he says, take hope. It's here. Open up. Christ has come for you. He stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? What's the cure for a lukewarm ministry? Wake up and open the door. The answer is dinner with Jesus. It's a relationship with him. He will make all things new. After all that's been said about this church, is there still hope for it? Well, actually, there's a lot of hope. Number five, what is the hope for this church? It's really the grand conclusion of this letter. Verse 21, to the one who is victorious, to the one who opens the door and lets the Savior in, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Whoa. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's he saying? Of all of the promises that are given to these seven churches, this is the most beautiful You, if you overcome, if you are a victor, you get to sit with the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. Really? The glory of this promise has no comparison. Don't miss that it's been offered to the church with the most flagrant violations and not one good thing said about it. To serve the Lord year after year faithfully is a challenge. But his throne is promised to everyone who serves faithfully. When is it it, uh, fulfilled? Well, in Revelation 20, verse 4, it says this. In the capital city, it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark and all this. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You get to reign on the throne of Christ in his presence. It's a very similar promise to the one you hear in Matthew 19 to the very first followers of the Lord here on earth. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Basically the same promise with the same conditions. In the Matthew, the condition is to follow him. In Revelation, the condition is to be a victor. It comes across that way in Luke 22. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here the Lord says the Father has given him his throne because he was himself victorious. He was faithful even to the point of death, Philippians 2. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Because the Lord humbled himself, God exalted him. Here the Laodiceans, whose hearts at the moment are lukewarm at best are joined to invite the same principle. If you will humble yourself, if you will obey the Savior, you will be given the right to sit with the Lord on his throne. Jesus isn't giving a full picture. What if you don't do that? The, the, the idea is not, well, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this. He's just trying to be a pastor here and encourage them to stick with it. The point is, he's not interested in saying, well, if you're not willing to be a dedicated follower, you're still going to go to heaven, which I think is true. You're not going to go to hell, but I'm going to just encourage you, he's saying with these thrones, be faithful. I don't want to give you the impression that it doesn't matter what you do after you come to know me as Savior, because it does matter. We who have accepted Christ as personal Savior, of course we are eternally secure. But at times, we need to be shaken. The most effective way for a pastor to do that is to tell them how awful their sin is and how great the reward is if they will turn back to him, if they will change. And that's what Jesus is trying to do to them. Wake up. It's important. There is hope. So we come to the end of these seven letters to the seven churches in Turkey. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How's your love for Jesus, he asked Ephesus. In Smyrna, he said, is Jesus really enough for you? Do you need other stuff? In Pergamum, he asked, what do you tolerate? What are you allowing in your midst? In Thyatira, do you compromise? What's the morality going on in there? In Sardis, is your reputation your idol? You all think you're alive, but you're dead. In Philadelphia, you're such a great church, but as the heat comes up, are you really willing to suffer? And in Laodicea, are you still desperate for Jesus? 
Do you have a great need or a desire for God? Because Jeremiah says, if you will seek me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God doesn't hide himself from us. He's simply waiting for us to seek him with a heart that is ready to see. He's standing at the door knocking. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In other words, be desperate. Do whatever it takes in your life to get to Jesus. You need to set up some accountability, then do it. You need a friend to come walk alongside you, then find that person. If you need to get up early or stay up late to be in the Word of God, then do it. If you need to memorize some verses, if you need to place verses in different places in your house so that you don't forget, do it. You see, the Word of God, it's our avenue to Christ. Don't let the obstacles derail you. Forgiveness stands at the throne of grace. Marvelous wonder awaits us in the presence of the King. It might not be as easy as we initially thought. But we need to be desperate for Jesus. We need to stop at nothing. Lest he spit us out of his mouth. Because our deeds are just lukewarm. Just room temperature. Let's pray. Father, these letters get to us. And yet, there is always grace. There is always hope. And there's always the promise. I pray that we might be victorious that we might be overcomers, that we might be open to the opportunities you have and the open doors of ministry, that we might be white hot in our passion and desire for Jesus. May your word change us in Jesus' name. Amen.